0: Welcome to the Edible Alpha Podcast Series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Hey, David, thanks for joining us this morning. You bet. It's um, it's always good to talk to you, and I think the best place for us to start is to have you just introduce yourself and the Good Acre.
1: Okay, my name is David Van Eckout, and I'm the Farm Program Director at the Good Acre, which is a food hub that's based in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um the, we have our fingers in a lot of different pies at the Good Acre. We, we are a wholesaler of product that we buy in. We have classes. We um, provide technical assistance to farmers, which is a big part of my job and what I do, and look for opportunities for farmers um, to market their products. And um, we also have a farm share that uh, we aggregate produce for uh, amongst farmers. Um, we do some... Uh, training for um, culinary workers to move into the school system because we do some farm to school wholesale. Um, so we, we, we basically have a lot going on. We have a commercial kitchen and makers in there working too. So there, there's always a lot going on there. In fact, so much so that most of us office elsewhere, because there's really no room for actual people working at desks <laughs> there. <laughs>
0: yeah, that is so crazy, because you have a fairly big facility. So it's, it's, it's so great to, to hear about all, all your growth. It's awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a facility uh, built by a farmer, you know, and so that yeah. farmers don't think about office space.
0: Right, <laughs> right, right. Well, let's, let's back up then and talk about um, the beginning of Goodacre. So, um, were you there right in the beginning or soon after?
1: No, I, I came in a couple years after it began. It's, okay. it, it's been open about six years now. Okay. And um, it kind of started, uh, Reese Williams, who's the executive director, uh, was approached by a funder. Say, Mm -hmm. you know, here's something we would like to start, and we were interested in you starting it.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: he said no, and they (laughs) and they went away, and then Mm -hmm. they came back and said, No, really, we would like we're, and he said no, and they went Uh away. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, after some resistance, he he uh was convinced that that this could be something interesting for him to do, and Mm -hmm. um. And then they they had the funding to be able to start with a new facility, which is a, a, a huge, uh, you know, opportunity for any right. organization, obviously. Um, so they built a, a new facility. It's uh, got three very large walk in coolers. I don't have square footage off the top of my head. Um, and then a walk in freezer and warehouse space that accompanies that. And then mm-hmm. also a classroom and a commercial kitchen. Um, so it, it it was kind of built as as a Swiss Army knife of a facility mm-hmm. for for kind of what the vision was for the organization,
0: and mm-hmm.
1: um, and for the most part that's been pretty accurate. You know, it mm-hmm. it hasn't you know other than like I said office space, but um, it, it it's worked out pretty well having that mix of resources available for people in the community.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. And and when you originally started, was the focus um, like farm to school wholesale? Was that kind of I really think, the start? Or yeah,
1: I mean, it was kind of in that that uh, ecosystem of a lot of food hubs, you know, mm-hmm. starting out. Mm-hmm. And um, so yes, I think because that was also kind of the you know mo of a lot of the food hubs that were starting out. That was also you know what was the thinking initially with this one is that uh, farm to school wholesale, you know, building enough of a customer base to have a large wholesale volume to be able mm-hmm. to eventually support the organization. And mm-hmm. because Reese had come from uh, a farming background, including a CSA background, you know, one of his first things that he did there was to start a farm share program. I mean, we call it a farm share. It's like a CSA, but mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not a true CSA because it doesn't have that shared risk component that an actual CS a farm based CSA would have.
0: Oh, so people don't pay you ahead of time. They do
1: or they most of them choose to, but uh-huh. it's it's not like a single source CSA where if um, oh, sure, y- you know your uh, the cucumber beetles descend on your cucumbers and you're not going to have any in the boxes this year. Mm-hmm. That they don't have that same level of risk because we, you know, we will just source it from a different farmer if that happens.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's
1: why I like to distinguish it as a farm share rather than calling it community supported agriculture, because it doesn't have that shared risk component.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. That, and that makes a lot of sense. So, okay. So when you, when you started up, you kind of had these two prongs to the organization and you um, let's talk about wholesale first. So your uh, primary markets are around the Twin Cities, right? For wholesale? Yeah,
1: pretty much exclusively in the Twin Cities um, Mm -hmm. and really started with the schools. Um, Mm -hmm. There was some, you know, initial funding around farm to school uh, when they were starting up that kind of, you know, gave that a leg up and Mm -hmm. made it move pretty quickly. But it, you know, I would say it's stagnated. You know, it's a challenging thing, farm to school. Um right. it doesn't seem like it's ever gonna be self-sustaining. Um, at least, you know, I should say that we're pretty heavily involved in produce, and that is the majority of what we handle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know there are you know, obviously local buying opportunities uh in farm to school with dairy and, and mm-hmm. proteins and things like that, but in terms of produce. You know, number one, the uh, farm to school calendar not aligning very well with our growing calendar here in the Upper Midwest (laughs) makes it challenging. But Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, school districts around the Twin Cities was was a big first push. And then Mm -hmm. it's evolved over the years to, um, you know, include some institutional sales, although. You know, I would say that's not a big focus for us anymore because the time spent cultivating that has not been rewarding. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's not worked out in any meaningful, sustainable way. Right. So I think um, there's a lot of feel good around that and in institutions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they want to buy once or twice and then claim that they sell local produce. And it's just right. not... Not worth the time. So then we've, you know, now the wholesale has moved towards um, hunger relief, which kind of came out of COVID and right. um, that's become the, the majority of it now. So that interesting wasn't really on anyone's radar necessarily, but uh, when the opportunity arose, we uh, went with it and it's been good.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that. So what is, cause there are a bunch of, a, a lot of hubs have been, you know, because of COVID have gotten into hunger relief and, but in lots of different ways. So let's talk about how you did that.
1: Well, I would say, you know, the first way that we really went into it was um, not as a market necessarily, but as an outlet for produce last year during COVID, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, we developed a program called the LEAF program, which is the local emergency assistance farmer fund. We kind of got together, you know, February or March and said, hey, let's, let's put these funds together and do something more meaningful um, to try and help farmers through this period that we, you know, of just pure uncertainty. Um, In doing that, we also decided, you know, instead of just giving farmers 500 bucks or, you know, Handing people a check, let's do something a little more meaningful. Let's honor the work that they do as farmers and just make a commitment to purchase uh, a set dollar amount of produce from them during the farm season, and then turn around and donate that produce to organizations that were, you know, working on food insecurity during that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which was great. You know, it was. Um, we We were able to raise quite a bit of funding. um it was it was a well-timed opportunity to uh, you know hit both of those points to help farmers and aid in hunger relief. and um it was very successful. We were able to we had forty seven farmers in the program, and um, we were able to guarantee purchases of seven thousand five hundred dollars from each of those farms. I should that's, also say that's that. great. Yeah, I should also say that all, we specifically focused this on farmers of color. So um, the entire program was based um,
0: mm-hmm. exclusively
1: for farmers of color. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a large, Hmong uh, farmers market cadre of farmers here around the Twin Cities. So that was really that was really a big priority is to help those farmers because they didn't have access to other markets. They couldn't just pivot to wholesale like um, some farmers could.
0: Right. Right. So okay. So so you um you were buying at um would you buy at wholesale price or were you buying closer to what they would get at a farmer's market?
1: Yeah, that was one of the intentions was to try and get pretty close to farmers market pricing. Um uh-huh. and and so that that is what we did. Sometimes we were and as you well know, you know, farmers market pricing can vary widely
0: depending mm-hmm. on
1: whether you're, you know downtown near the capital in Madison there, or if you're out mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere, you know? So right. I think we, we were shooting for farmers market pricing and um, we overshot it in some cases and we undershot it in other cases, but I think it came out pretty good. Um, it didn't end up being a, an issue really. Most farmers were pretty, pretty happy with the prices they received. And in mm-hmm. some cases it did probably siphon off product from other going and other channels because the price was so good.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, all right. So, and you, you collaborated with some other organizations on this. So, um, you know, are, were those organizations that were already working with farmers of color or?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, so the, the main collaborators on it were, um, The uh, Mill City Farmer's Market. So, I mean, they're obviously a farmer's market in downtown Minneapolis. um, Mm -hmm. So they obviously have a lot of farmers who are farmers of color already at that market and had people who could feed right into the program. Um, Lakewinds uh, Co-op, which is a co-op in the western part of the Twin Cities. And Mm -hmm. um, then uh, HAP, which is the Hmong American Partnership, which is an organization that supports Um, the Hmong community in a whole bunch of different ways from business technical assistance to uh, busing for uh, charter schools that are part of the Hmong community. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think most of the partners were really already um, deeply committed to working with farmers of color and and had the uh, relationships built already Mm -hmm. so that we didn't have to we did have to do some relationship building, but we didn't have to start from, you know, square one with relationships, and then try and really build some trust in the community before we could get people to take part in the program.
0: Right, right. So that so, um, so how was how did you distribute the food?
1: So the uh, again working directly with the partner organizations. Um, basically just had anyone say, do you have places that are that are struggling right now and, and need help rather than going, I mean, we could have just picked up the phone and gotten rid of all of it to a, a, a large food bank right? Uh, because there was, you know, huge demand, but they also had huge supply, you know, at mm-hmm. that time too, the food, the, you know, mainline food banks did. So uh, the, one of the partners, uh, HAP, they uh, actually work with uh, three Hmong charter schools around mm-hmm. the Twin Cities. And, uh, those, the families in those charter schools, uh, were definitely, you know, had a need and mm-hmm. they were packing, the charter schools were going to pack bags of produce and other, um, food items for the families as the kids were doing online schooling. So that's, that was really the first big outlet was working with those three Hmong charter schools. Um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, ultimately during the whole year that, ended up being where the majority of the produce went was to those three schools, which is great because it was direct. It was, um, really appreciated. And a lot of times we were buying produce from farmers within the community and the food was going back to the community. Mm -hmm. And so, They were a lot of the items were culturally specific, so it it uh, it was really a win win to make that partnership with those places for the food to go, also because it kind of completed the whole cycle.
0: So you ended up doing farm to school anyway. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Ironically,
1: (laughs) at a much larger scale than normal. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. So you ended up doing it. So this program ended up being bigger than just your farm to school is normally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So are you going to continue this?
1: Yeah. So we, um, we do have some funding to continue it for this year. We have about 60 farms that have applied to be part of the program. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have as much funding as we did last year. So we're going to have to pick and choose a little bit, which is, which is a bit more of a challenge, you know, mm-hmm. pick winners and losers when uh, really what we were trying to do is is support the entire community. But the reality is, it it was well received last year. The uh, farmers loved it. The food recipients loved it, uh, and the funders loved it. You know, so I think the only thing that's keeping us from getting as much funding uh, in twenty twenty one as we had last year is just last year there was just funding in crazy ways, you know, that, I mean, it was, right. it was not hard to fund the program last year. Things, have, right. things have tightened up. considerably. This
0: Right. Year. Like we're going back to, you know, a little bit more back to normal. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Less, less
0: crisis mode. Right. Right. But do you, do you guys see this as an ongoing program now?
1: I think, uh, I think we need to see, obviously it needs to be funded, you know, it's right it's not, since there is no revenue component to it, it's not going to self-sustain. So I guess the question is, how do you fund something like this in the long term? The nice thing about it is it is kind of, you know, a double efficient program in terms of a donation. So if someone donates $100, um, not only does that $100 go to purchase produce from the farmer, but then that $100 worth of produce gets you know, into the hunger relief channel. So it kind of, you get double duty, Mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, I don't, so I don't know. I mean, I think it remains to be seen how it could be a long-term program. We honestly haven't had the time to really reflect on that and figure out how it could become that.
0: Right. Right. Well, it's, I think one of the things that has been, um, it's had, I mean, so these pivot into hunger relief has happened, um, in hubs that we work with and see around the country and they're all kind of thinking about how do you make this sustainable? And, you know, there were government funds that were helpful and, um, that are, you know, not sustainable. So, um, but I think one of the things that they noticed is that it's kind of hard to get donors excited about supporting wholesale food, but hunger relief was easier.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, the the towards the end of last year, um, there was some funding that had gotten freed up at one of the uh, large area food banks, Second Harvest Heartland. And they started calling us looking for produce from farmers of color, um, which is great because they, you know, previously have been kind of a pennies on the dollar sort of option for farmers, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. And so we haven't dealt much with them, but now that they had this funding, we could actually say, well, we might be able to get you some, but we need to have these kind of prices because otherwise farmers just aren't going to take advantage of it. You know, they're not not going to do it. And um, so they really did, they really did pony up with the funding and we were able to move a lot of produce at the end of last year, um, so much so that by the time we got to, you know, November 1st, there was, there was basically no produce left around the twin cities to purchase from from color. I mean, it really moved. We moved through basically everything that was out there, which was wonderful. Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest thing to come out of that was to build that relationship with second harvest and them to understand the importance of supporting, um, farmers from different walks of life you know Mm -hmm. it it really has gotten on their radar in a big way so much so that this winter they called us up and said you know we want to continue doing this we oh that's wonderful this is important to us and um so they said we want to do a a year where we uh buy x amount of produce from you guys and Mm -hmm. um and then you know my response to that was like well that's great but one year is not enough. We want you to commit for three years because mm-hmm. I can't go to a farmer and ask them to, ch- you know, change their market channel for one year because right. they're not going to get back into their farmer's market if we do that. Right. You know, and, and you know, and the infrastructure and the You know, when you only get two chances a year to plant a crop up here in the north, it's like you also don't leave any room for mistakes when you do something for one year. Right. So We we got them to commit to a three year program of really, um, really, you know, putting their money where their mouth was. Oh,
0: that's great.
1: Yeah. and, And that is now produce sales that are being, you know, going into hunger relief as a market channel.
0: Yeah.
1: Which is, you know, obviously it still needs to be funded from somewhere. But if um, some of those larger food banks have amazing funding networks and um, and still, you know, have had some great opportunities from the federal government, too. So that there there is that's an easier source of funding for them. And then it's just a source of revenue for us. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, for the time being, I think that's worked out really well.
0: So that is going to give you um, kind of a base for this program. It sounds like, and then maybe you can fundraise some on top of it.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a different program than the leaf program because mm-hmm. it is um, it, it's a contract program. We contracted with all the farmers for the okay. problem for this, um, so the farmers could feel you know confident in that uh, we're going to buy exactly what's on that contract if they have it. Yeah, and then we. Also, one of, one of the big barriers for us is packaging with farmers. Mm. Um, if, if you're used to doing a farmer's market, you really have a hard time uh, putting down the money for brand new packaging only to just send it away and never see it again. Right. So th- that's been a barrier that we've wow. really started to try and... Um, break down every time we talk to a potential customer or opportunity like this. And so mm-hmm. they did have some funding from uh, a grant they had last year that they're able to purchase the packaging, which, which is a big, a big deal. That's
0: a big deal for your farmers. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's not a significant amount of money, but it's not um, an insignificant amount either.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's really what my role as, you know, working closely with the farmers is to just constantly be thinking about what is a barrier? Is Mm -hmm. this a barrier? Why is this a barrier? Why do, why is this here? Do we have to have this here or can Mm -hmm. we get rid of it somehow? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to throw up new barriers without even thinking about it.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. Well, and farmers have so many things to think about anyway. Right. And I can see why they, yeah. Yeah. So, do you when you so you're take you're purchasing this product? Are you aggregating then at your facility and then taking? It, is it your trucks that are taking things? How does that all work?
1: Yeah, um, we are aggregating um, because most of the farms that we work with are not at scale to be able to um, handle pallet type quantities. Mm-hmm. So, generally, we're aggregating per pallet. You know, maybe. Three to five farms on a oh, farm I see.
0: yeah
1: to kind of build pallets, and 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 that's especially because we're working with a lot of farmers that don't have economies of scale. They're pretty much doing everything by hand. You can't expect, uh, you know, one farm to clean, you know, fifty cases of scallions for your delivery. It's just not going to happen. You know? Right. So yeah, we're we're aggregating um, across multiple farms. And then we are, it, it really depends. The deliveries, for the most part, Second Harvest will pick up some product, but for the most part, it's our truck that's taking it over to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, so this is not an operation. This would not be possible for these farmers to supply Second Harvest on their own because you, you're doing something that Second Harvest can't, yeah, they can't do, Right.
1: Yeah, we're doing something Second Harvest can't do and doesn't certainly doesn't want to do. And and then we're also doing something the farmers can't do, which is that, that communication, right. and that, that handholding that goes along with, you know, these aren't, you know, 400 acre farms, they're not going to have, you know, pallets and pallets and pallets of stuff. And mm-hmm. they may not have ever dealt with wholesale before. So I think, you know, one of the ways we're kind of trying to frame it right now is is the LEAF program is kind of our, our entryway to wholesale for farmers in mm-hmm. that it's very flexible. And they don't need, you know, they can bring in whatever they have, mm-hmm. whatever quantity they have, as long as they don't go past their dollar amount. You know, so that's kind of a really, that's a really low bar for just, you know, starting to see is wholesale something I might want to do. And then with Second Harvest, we're kind of at the next step where it's like, okay, I don't mind doing wholesale. I got these five things that grow really well on my farm and we can, you know, my wife and I can handle it or Mm -hmm. whoever is involved in the farm can handle doing X amount and and really get more into thinking like a wholesale might be an actual market for me so that I can drop a farmer's market or two, you know, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the farmers we're working with, they might be going to four farmer's markets. They might be going to one, a a number of farmers we work with go to one that's open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from, whoa, uh, I think it's from like six to four. And you have to be there all three days, all day long.
0: Oh my God. And then you have to farm. That's crazy, right?
1: Yeah. So the idea of like having a market where you can take a whole bunch of stuff at once and then go back to the farm. Is it, right. It, it's a pretty big step for farmers. And and so that's kind of how we're looking at this is the second harvest is the second step. And when they're done with, when they've done a year or two of second harvest, then they may be ready to connect directly with a wholesaler or mm-hmm. something like that. If that's something they've decided they want to do. I, I always try to be very careful, too, that we're not just imposing what we think they should do, right, onto them, but rather to say, is this something you want to do or not? Because mm-hmm. it's not for everybody, and we know that.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. So, okay. So it's going to be at least another three years. You'll be doing this program. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah, yeah, and um, is it just in your straight farm to school? Is um, are the uh, do you see that? you know, picking up in the fall at all, or?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, it does always pick up in the fall. There Mm -hmm. are a few summer programs this year that are a little bit. That are going. Yeah, that are kind of carryovers from uh, last year when there were more summer-based programs just to make sure that people were still having access to food if schools were shutting down and things, and they just carried forward into the summer. So I think we still have some of that going on and other Mm -hmm. Other um box food box type opportunities that are still out there this year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um but as far as the schools in general, I don't know that we have a lot on the books in terms of calendar. You know, our wholesale guy is probably the best guy to answer that question, but um, you know, it's 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 a challenge. Scheduling out farm to school is a challenge just because farms farms want the information in February or January. Right. Schools want to provide the information in August. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) It's like always, you know, trying to figure out how to do that. It has been challenging, and it continues to be a challenge. I think you have, you know, the larger districts are much better prepared to, you know, really put out a, a, you know, a call for bids, you know, early on in the spring, so that farmers can be ready for them. You know, Minneapolis or Saint Paul but you know they also you know they also burned some bridges last year with covid when when they did have contracts with farmers for farm to school the the larger districts did and then they had to just shut down and say you know what those know. we can we can't fulfill those contracts and it was a you know it was a 911 everybody understands it was an emergency but it still has got to leave some farmers with a little bit of a bad taste in their mouth
0: Right, right. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of how that all how that all restarts it. Yeah. And so shifting a little bit now to to your CSA that how did that do last year?
1: Well, like everything, it went bonkers, you know, I mean, we're 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 pretty uh, careful to not oversell it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we, you know, we cut it off. It was sold out by, I don't know, April 1st or
0: something. Right. Um, wow. And that, and how many people, how many shares is that?
1: It's, it's right about 500, 500 yeah. 50 this year, um, uh-huh. it a little bit, but yeah, I mean, but we cut it off. We could certainly do more than that. It just, the capacity with everything else we've got going on, and the amount of labor it takes to pack those boxes, which mm-hmm. you know we do have a tremendous volunteer base, which does an amazing job at doing that. But you also can't, you know, expect a volunteer to stand there on a concrete floor for twelve hours to pack, right? Those boxes,
0: right, <laughs> or right. You
1: won't. You won't have any volunteers
0: they will come back. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. So, so it was really successful. Um, yeah. And uh, do you guys think that's going to sustain, too?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's been the most consistent thing. You know, it's uh, I mean, Reese did really start out with that program and it it continues to be a very consistent. It's you know, it's a revenue generating program, which is great. Yeah. Um, it uh has consistently grown it you know obviously they have had to spend a lot less time marketing it the last 2 years you know they
0: used to,
1: they used to do a lot more legwork in terms of going into businesses and um, you know talking to organizations about having a pickup site at their place of business um so that's yeah that's been good and it's a good price point for farmers you know it's another opportunity to really aggregate maybe even from smaller farmers Mm-hmm. Um, it, you, very few of, uh, the items do we say, you know, this one farmer is going to do all 500 bunches of kale or whatever it is for that week. Right. Um, usually again, it's aggregated between multiple farms so that we can provide a market for farmers who who don't have economies of scale, you know, who need mm-hmm. that, need some way to participate in a non direct retail way and still be able to manage it without killing themselves, you know?
0: Right. 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 So, and do you do more than produce in your CSA?
1: You know, it has morphed into number one, having more uh, specialty shares, you know, like a, a grilling share or a spring share or a, oh, okay. a late fall share. or um, So yeah, there's definitely been a growth of those type of opportunities. but Then also the addition of a cheese share or a bread share or, yeah, so non-produce things um, has, yeah, definitely become part of it, especially over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm,
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And you think – so one of the things I think people are really trying to get their heads around right now is coming out of – like, in COVID, everybody was much more interested in CSA shares and buying direct from farmers. And, and, you know, is it going to last? What's the consumer going to do? So, like, do you have any sense of that yet?
1: I, you know, the farms that I talk to, I haven't really talked to a lot of farmers about how their farmers markets are going because we're just really getting started here. Um, but, yeah, certainly the CSA farms, the, the interest has not waned yet. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think people sold out early and often again this year. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I ran a CSA farm myself for 20 years and, uh, we had this kind of, you know, peak time, which was about, you know, 2012 or whatever, where CSAs had been kind of ramping up for a long time. And, it kind of peaked right about then and then slowly Mm -hmm. started to taper down. I mean, I I know we saw this around the Twin Cities and I I, I think I've heard the same kind of around Madison too. Yeah,
0: no, definitely.
1: And um, so this is definitely a reverse of that
0: trend. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And I don't know totally what the factors were in that trend slowing down in the late 2010s. So I don't know if those factors are still in place so that we're going to see that kind of slow down again after we kind of get past the when COVID gets a little more in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's a good question. I, I, I mean, there are so many opportunities to purchase local or organic or whatever, which is which is what I saw as a big reason why the market kind of started to slow down when you could buy organic bananas at the quick trip or whatever yeah
0: (laughs) right right it
1: was like it it was everywhere and there was a farmer's market on every corner in every neighborhood you know so that it was like you don't have to just go to a csa like you really did when i started our farm in 2002 you know that was kind of Mm -hmm. your only option so those other opportunities to purchase local and organic food still exist. And some of those have grown also. So I don't know. And, and then we have all these uh, box companies, you know, that have tried right. to come into the space and and do something. Um, thankfully around the Twin Cities, they really haven't gotten a strong foothold. People around the Twin Cities seem pretty interested in supporting farmers directly.
0: Mm-hmm. but yeah yeah and i wonder if that yeah it remains to be seen right like i i mean for us we go okay well once you experience getting food directly from a farm why would you go back but i don't know the answer to that right
1: yeah i mean unless you're missing something that you really want to be able to get from a farm you know whether it's meat or chicken right right. Mm -hmm, mm
0: do you guys do um work in meat at all do I, I, like are you doing any meat move like is there a meat share with your csa or something so you have kind of a window into processing but yeah. I'm, I'm bringing that up because i just did an interview with somebody who opened a meat processing facility believe it or not in the middle of covid they were planning on it he and a group of investors bought something that had shut down um And so, um, and then they, they opened it again and he said the first nine months they were open, they were completely booked. And then suddenly this spring, the demand just fell off a cliff and it's been this way for meat processors, other meat processors too. So it's like, um, the crazy, oh my God, I got to get my, you know, quarter beef thing. Um, kind of worked its way through the system and now we're kind of back to where we were. And I, I was wondering if you had a sense of what that looks like in Minnesota.
1: Yeah, I am. I am not that tied into the, the meat, uh, side of the business. You know, I, I, our farm share kind of limits itself to cheese and eggs as you know, in terms of protein, we haven't, we haven't really done a foray because You go into meat and then things need to stay frozen. Right. It's a
0: whole nother level.
1: Yeah. It's a whole nother level that we haven't taken on yet. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard what you're talking about. Um, For the most part, people are, it seems like people are able to get access to times at the local lockers around here,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, Yes, it's pretty full, but if you have an existing relationship, it seems like people are able to make Mm -hmm. it work. And, you know, we still have a fair number of small lockers here in Western Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know because I live in River Falls. I don't know the situation as well um, in Minnesota, but I do know that Minnesota Farmers Market Association and others have been, you know, the... um, Uh, Minnesota Institute of Sustainable Ag has been working closely with a number of growers trying to find better opportunities for processing because it has been, I mean, last year it was just a ridiculous challenge.
0: Yeah, no, last year was bad. Um, And again, it was this sort of the snake swallowing the elephant thing, right, that everybody suddenly was going to the grocery store and seeing empty meat shelves and deciding they needed a quarter or half of beef. (laughs) You know, that, that's my other thing. I'm working. I work with some, we work with some direct, um, marketing farms, right. And, and the meat people went through, Oh my God, crazy ordering. And their orders have tapered off too, which is why the lockers are, you know, it sort of ripples through the system. Right. But then there are things like chicken that there's one poultry processing plant and pretty much all of Wisconsin. Right. Yeah. So they're, are definitely, definitely obstacles. And you guys, I mean, you're a great example of an organization that actually, I mean, you were designed to, to, to fill a gap in the supply chain. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, and and, well, and really build a market for people who couldn't build it themselves.
0: Yeah, Right. Right. And you couldn't, I mean, they couldn't build it themselves and they couldn't physically get things, you know, pallet quantities to the people who need it. Like you're, you're, you know, really filling that gap in, in the marketplace.
1: Yeah. I mean, I will say that our, uh, we do have a walk-in freezer and, um, that tends to, it's not as big as our coolers, obviously, but it it tends to always be full, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think those kinds of storage opportunities and, you know, storage where you can go in Mm
0: -hmm. and get
1: access to what you've got stored. And you can do that every Monday or whatever, without having to just go to a dock you know, tell them, you know, have them go in and then they're going to charge you every time you go in to pull your pallet and all oh, right
0: Right, right, you know. right. That right.
1: expensive pretty fast. So that, yeah, having that kind of, you know, easy access to product that's in storage is, is there's a huge need for that as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, all right. So we went through um, your, uh, the, there's another program that you guys started and it was right that this is the the train culinary training program for people who are going to um, work in schools, right? And that's did that start in before COVID or right during COVID or how did that work?
1: Yeah, I mean that that ball started rolling. Um, yeah, the the really the year before COVID, so it mm-hmm. was already in process. It just you know it was kind of in the planning phase when COVID hit. And mm-hmm. so the, the startup of it got delayed because it had to all morph from being an in-person thing in a commercial kitchen to being online to, you know, all, all the different things that
0: mm-hmm. you had to do, mm-hmm.
1: but it did, uh, but it did actually the first cohort did get through there. Um,
0: so that's, that's great.
1: Yeah. So that's great. It just, yeah, it certainly presented a lot of challenges and I, you know, it's not, it's not a program that I'm intimately tied into because, you know, I'm really farm focused. So right, yeah, I, I uh, am not an expert in it, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I know that that first cohort made it through and the second cohort is going to be starting here uh, relatively soon.
0: Cool. And they're going to be back in the kitchen.
1: Uh, they are actually renting a different kitchen, uh, ah. run it because we have quite a bit of, Makers in our kitchen tying it up. And it's, we really didn't want to kick out (laughs) the people who are renting the kitchen to work on their products in order to um, do something else. And there is a fair amount of commercial kitchen space out there that's underutilized. Oh, okay. It it was kind of easier to, you know, rent a space than it was to kick out somebody who might be a long-term user
0: in our kitchen right that makes sense yeah yeah so how many pe- makers do you have in your kitchen
1: oh again roughly i'm gonna guess
0: yeah yeah roughly
1: <laughs> not my department yeah but um you know probably about a dozen right now
0: okay but that's that's a lot. You don't you know, for your space. It's not a huge space.
1: It's not a huge space. It can really accommodate, you know, two makers at once being in there at the same time, depending mm-hmm. on whether or not they have an employee or two in there with them.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 So that part of your business is doing is doing well too. So it sounds like you're really busy. What have I missed in terms of what your programs are?
1: Well, I mean, yes, it is busy. I agree with you. Um, mm-hmm. What have you missed in terms of programs? Uh, you know, there are, you know, farm to school is, we talked about that a little bit. We used to do more um, actual training of uh, staff in farm to school kitchens. And mm. that's that's kind of obviously slowed down last year because um, no one was open. Right. Um, and I don't know if that's going to really pick back up or not. We also used to do kit, uh, cooking classes too, but we, we got rid of that with COVID and I don't think that's going to come back. Right. Um,
0: running out of kitchen space.
1: Yeah. It, running out of kitchen space. There has been talk of like how we could have a, a, a larger space in the kitchen because there's, there's a fair amount of demand for that, but there's a fair amount of demand for everything, you know? So it's, it's, it's hard to figure out where you would, um, cut one thing in order to do. Right,
0: right, 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 right. Yeah. And let's talk about your work with farmers. So what, when you're working with farmers, what kinds of work are you doing with them?
1: Well, um, you know, everybody likes to use the phrase technical assistance, you mm-hmm. know, which, um, Generally, in the in the uh, farm uh, service world means more financial assistance than production-related assistance. But I, I tend to do more of the latter, um, mm-hmm. even though I do some of the former as well. So I uh, I spent a lot of time on farms. Um, I went out to, let's see, last week I visited eight different farms. Um, and we really start out with, you know, it depends where the farmer's at, you know. So it's like, yeah. what are your needs right now? You know, with a lot of new farmers that we have coming in with part of the Second Harvest program or other wholesale related programs, you know, sometimes it's just to get out there and say, hey, I'm here as a resource. If you have questions, um, let me know. And it's, and it's also a good way to do some of the sometimes we have requirements from a customer that they need this and that for their food safety um, records for any farmer that's selling in excuse me and um so that's an easy way to get rid of that barrier is to have me go out to a farm and say hey we have these couple questions about food safety practices for your farm and i can i can write that up for them so they don't uh, you know i'm not going to just call a farmer and say hey would you mind just doing a food safety plan for me
0: yeah right
1: <laughs> because you know that's that, that's not productive and it just creates another problem for a farmer so That's certainly something I go out on farms to do. I go out on farms and and look at uh, fertility problems, irrigation problems, pest problems, disease problems, Mm -hmm. um, you know, runs the gamut. I, you know, I'm not an expert. I just have 20 years of farming experience. So Mm -hmm. it's, um, I'm a pretty good problem solver. And if I can't solve the problem, then I know someone usually who can, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and that's, you know, for a lot of the, Hmong farmers, they don't have access to that. They're not as comfortable using university extension, um, even though it's getting a lot better than it was, say, five years ago. But mm-hmm. it's still, there's still a barrier there in terms of talking to people. And then there's just simply the fact that when you have a, a large farmer base that is renting land, it's really hard to know where they're farming and where they are. Right. It, you know, so it's really making some of those connections being maybe the first person besides the farmer's family who's ever walked onto their land and said, mm. oh, all right, this looks good. Or that, oh, you're doing it that way. Let's, you know, have you thought about this? Because I have a lot of farmers who do it like this. And, you know, it they've never had that kind of interaction with anyone before. So it's, farmers are pretty um, open to that, provided you've spend some time building a relationship, which is obviously another large part of the work I do is just building relationships.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. So are, are these farms, um, like uh, how big are they? Just how much land are they cultivating in general?
1: Um, it really varies. Uh-huh. So we have certainly farms that are up, you know, over 10 acres, but for the most part, they're down in the three to four acre range. Okay. Um, I think but that's
0: a. I mean, four acres is a lot of vegetables.
1: It's a lot of vegetables, especially when you maybe have one cultivating tractor and 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 not much else, and yeah, everything's handwork besides that. So, yeah, I would say, you know, I I did put that as a question on the application for the uh, leaf participants this year. Like, you know, how many acres do you have in production? So that I I am able to, it's really an aggregation of land too, because it's like, yeah, they may be 60 small farmers applied to to this program, but those 60 small farmers represent 500 acres of production. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's, getting that kind of information across to the powers that be a little more to understand that this is not, um, a hobby.
0: Right. Right.
1: When you aggregate it together, it's a significant impact and it's a significant volume. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that 2020 showed us is when you start to aggregate from that many different farms, there is a significant volume there. So if you're Mm going to, As a buyer, your excuse is that like, well, they don't have the volume that we need for our operation. Well, it's really not true. It just takes a little more work to access it.
0: Well, and it takes somebody like the Good Acre in between to do the work to aggregate it. Right. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. And are they, are they, I'm assuming they're renting land? Are they in like farm incubators or what does that look like by you?
1: Yeah. Some of both. Um, Uh We we certainly have uh, a number of farmers that are on farm incubator situations. We have other ones who are on long term leases and others who are on year to year leases and then others who own their own land. You know, Mm -hmm. um, it's been there's obviously been a large push to work around farmland access. And um, it's been a huge barrier for farmers who don't have access to land. But, you know, it's interesting too, my take on farmland access is let's make sure first that the farmer is actually interested in owning land because Mm -hmm. we work with a lot of farmers who aren't, you know, Mm. and that's just, they may be older, you know, they may be in an older generation that they're 60 or 70 years old. They don't want to purchase a piece of farmland now. They just want a reliable place to rent land until they decide to stop farming. Mm-hmm. So, so I think we really try and, again, you know, ask what the need is rather than assume that everybody wants the same thing.
0: Right, right. That's interesting. And those folks, those folks probably are the first generation who came here, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think certainly the the first generation among refugees, yeah, they, there are a number of that older generation that um, are kind of at that stage of farming. And they may mm-hmm. have worked a full-time job when they got here and for a number of years. And then now that they're getting older, they just want to farm and that's enough income for them. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of their retirement, you know?
0: Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, and you know, they experienced, you know, who knows whether they owned lands back At home. Right. But they experience losing it. Right. So it's kind of a different, I would guess, psychology around land ownership.
1: Yeah, definitely. Culturally, there are there are completely different cultural approaches to that. Yeah. With with everyone you work with. Um, That's
0: interesting. So
1: Again, yeah, it's not a one size fits all. Uh, a, approach where if we just do this one thing, we're going to help everybody. You know,
0: right, 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 right. <laughs> one of you- my
1: one of my huge things that that I'm constantly talking about is is how important it is to have one to one technical assistance for farmers. Yeah, and and one of my frustrations is that we have a tendency to do a one size fits all approach with a with a fact sheet or a webinar right right things that that are important but if you if you have limited uh, english and you don't have access to a laptop but you might have a phone you you, you just aren't going to be able to access some of those resources that that farmers need to help them and so it's there just aren't that many farmers, so that mm-hmm. one-to-one technical assistance is not an impossibility. It's it's really the best I, I find. It's the best investment in terms of that kind of assistance.
0: Yeah, yeah. And do you have do you work with any Latino farmers too?
1: Yeah, we uh, work pretty closely with uh, the Latino Economic Development Center (LEDC) here in the uh-huh. Twin Cities. And then uh, shared ground, which is a Latino-owned cooperative. Um, so yeah, we work um, very closely with them. Uh, you know, they have they have a similar uh, LEDC has a similar person to in terms of their job as what I do. Uh-huh. So yeah, the, he and I communicate frequently and have uh, discussions about this stuff. So yeah, it's uh, cool. It's been. You know, I think in the Latino community, because they're, and, and I'm not speaking for the Latino community because I am not a part of that community, but they don't have access to retail markets like the Hmong farmers have really embraced. You mm. know? And, and certainly, you know, citizenship and other factors are in play there where they're not comfortable going and sitting at a farmer's market table because it's a very public for front facing. Oh, activity. sure. Yeah. You know, and so uh, the, the Latino farms have trended more towards wholesale, but it's been a challenge, too. You know, I mean, having good technical assistance uh, for those farms has has been important. But They've really been hit by disease and climate change related issues as they've moved into wholesale. And so it's made it challenging for them to continue doing it. I I, I think a lot of the Latino farms we work with are looking more closely at livestock now um, Hmm. because produce has been a challenge. You know, it's a challenge growing produce in this climate right now.
0: Mm hmm. And and so what do you see changing since you've been because you've had the 20 years that you were farming yourself and now you've been at good acre like over it's basically 25 plus years. Right. Yeah. In terms of climate, like what are you seeing? Well, changing? I, mean, I,
1: I think the. Uh, you know, the main thing is less frequent rains, but when they come, they're more intense,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, so that preparing for that has been a big part of trying to pivot towards being able to farm in this climate. You know, a number, a lot of farmers have moved undercover, you know, with high tunnels and greenhouses and things of that nature so that they can control the environment better. You know, it's obviously a very expensive option and is Mm -hmm. only reasonable for high value crops. But um, you know, I I I think that's been the biggest change is is the rain. You know, it, it's we're supposed to get more of those types of events. Right now, this year so far, that's not been the case. We're obviously feeling a little droughty this year. Um, so there, on that side, irrigation is an importance in any year wh- like this, where we have a lot of heat and a lot of drought. So making sure, you know, obviously farmers on rented land don't have access to a well Mm -hmm. for irrigating. Um, That's a real challenge for farmers. Um, We have a lot of farmers that, you know, end up renting marginal land because that's all that's available to them, you know? Right. And if you're renting a piece of marginal land, you really don't have the, the buffer of the soil to even out some of these peaks and valleys in terms of weather,
0: right? you
1: know, so if you're renting a piece of sandy ground right now, it, you you're living in a world of hurt because it's mm-hmm. just, you can't get enough water on. And a lot of times you might not even have access to the water. So I think that's been a real challenge for the farms is like, how can we find them land that isn't marginal that they mm-hmm. can have long-term access to? Yeah, it's, it's just it, you. You can't change the soil no matter no matter how much cover crops and compost you can bring in. You're still you, you're still just you know putting a little powdered sugar on top of the cake. It's
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's so I think that's been something we really think about a lot. Is like how can we get farmers access to land that isn't just the worst land that someone has because right it, so that, that's
0: it's it's not the marginal. land yeah 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 that that yeah that and that's interesting because a lot of incubators and stuff are set up on places that are marginal
1: yeah yeah it's true and it's unfortunate and it's just part of the long history of getting you know access to marginal opportunities for you know communities of color so it soil is yeah i mean getting farmers access to prime farmland with irrigation it is just a huge thing that could make an amazing difference for farmers,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it's heavy lifting, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting is that conventional agriculture and large scale agriculture is, is experiencing the same things, right? Like around the upper, well, around the whole country. Yeah. I just read something Shelby in our office sent me something that, about farmers in the West just just giving up because shipping their livestock because it's so dry. Right. Pulling down, cutting down trees, like there's just no point. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, for for people like us who have been doing this for a while, you think um, we kind of knew climate change was something out there and coming and kind of thought it would be down further down the road than it turns out it is, right? For yeah. Agriculture.
1: yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that we're really that I'm seeing is, um, you know, pest and disease is shifting too. Yeah. you know, it, we're, we didn't used to have, I mean, I know you guys have are well uh, familiar with Japanese beetles down there in Madison, but we didn't, oh, yeah. we, we didn't used to have them here, you know, and not that um, long ago, five years right. ago, it was, you know, except maybe right in the city center, they were not a real issue. But, you know, them and other pests are making their way north every year. You know, we're having new stuff. We're having new diseases that we didn't have to used to even worry about because the humidity levels are staying consistent all summer long. We don't dry out.
0: Mm-hmm. You know?
1: And now, right now, we're in a drought, so not as much of an issue this year, but it could change in a week, you know, who knows. Right. But, yeah, that's definitely the uh ability to come up with new varieties that have resistance to new things is, it takes time and right. it doesn't unfortunately a lot of the farmers we work with also may not have access to the latest seed technology in terms of you know something that's resistant to mm. multiple races of downy mildew for example or or uh, black rot or whatever it is um, a lot of our farmers are using the same seed over and over. They save seed. And right. the other, you know, part of the education I try and do with farmers is like, hey, you know, what is this problem you have? You know, let's check it out. And is there something, is there a variety that's resistant to it?
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, so helpful. I mean, and if you think about people for whom English is not their first language, right, just to even do the research they would need to do to figure out what the solutions would be and what the variety options would be, that's a lot.
1: It is a lot. And it's, you know, and, you know, the only way you know that is looking at your big colorful seed catalog that might have, you know, Eight or ten different abbreviations for different disease resistance tolerance, oh, yeah.
0: mm-hmm. and
1: yeah, I mean it's literally just saying, okay, these, this, this is how they're abbreviating this disease in this catalog.
0: to wow. so look
1: for this. I mean, just some of that information that you know white farmers take for granted, you know, because mm-hmm. it's just been part of the ecosystem the whole time. A lot of other farming communities, they, they haven't had that same opportunity to you know engage with those publications or anyone to talk about that with them.
0: Right, right. So what do you think is what do you see in the future for Goodacre? Well,
1: I think it's uh, you know I, I think the future is really exciting with you know hunger relief as a market opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really exciting to continue building strong relationships with farms.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: it building relationships with farmers from different cultures is is really challenging. You know, I, I mean, I'm a shy Midwesterner. I'm not uh-huh. I'm not a I am not a gregarious uh, extrovert out there glad-handing every farmer I see, you know, it. it's a challenge for me, but I think it's a challenge for everybody who is trying to really make an impact. You know, um, it takes multiple touches with farms to really get them to understand that you're not there to just take a survey and then go away and never hear from you <laughs> You know, right. which is kind of the the mentality, unfortunately, of of the um, the state and the you know, it's like, well, how can we get more of these farmers to answer this survey? Well, right, you have to build the relationships. Yeah, it takes time and it costs money. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to make the commitment. So, I, I do think we're seeing a, a shift in that um, more of these government and uh, academic agencies are starting to really understand that more and they're starting to put resources there. I, I just hope it's a lasting change and not just one that's coming out of COVID.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, no, and, you know, political regimes come and go and it that means there isn't consistency either in terms of policy, you know?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, and I mean... We have this whole kerfuffle that's going to go on with this, um, the ARPA m- money to uh, um, compensate farmers or, you know, uh, relieve farmers of USDA debt who are farmers of color and from the FSA. And mm-hmm. that, you know, that's creating a bunch of confusion
0: mm-hmm. and
1: angst and tension within mm-hmm. communities. Yeah. I, I don't think it was.
0: Well thought
1: out. <laughs> well thought out. And I, and I hope it doesn't do more harm than good because I, it's important for neighbors to have relationships mm-hmm. and and not have wedges driven between them because of government programs.
0: Right, but right.
1: I, but I also really think it's important for the USDA to, uh, you know, rip, fix some of the damage it's done, you know.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, well, this is great. So, um, so in the future, it you know more with the hunger relief, more working with, um, with farmers of color, and um, you're you guys are going to keep doing your CSA, I suspect, and yeah, yeah, and hopefully the wholesale will pick up again. You know,
1: yeah, I hope so. I mean, one other thing I I should mention too is that I do uh, also work with farmers on viability. Uh-huh. Um, in the wintertime, kind of that's become kind of the winter activity. Uh-huh. And uh I, I, I really hope that we have more of a um role to play there in terms of helping farms understand what their costs are, what's
0: mm, what's yeah.
1: profitable for them, where to expand their market, and where to cut their market if it's not working out.
0: Mm -hmm,
1: I think mm -hmm. getting farmers to understand marketing costs is something that I'm committed to. Um, We're doing some work with the center for farm financial management to do some benchmarking for vegetable farms.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And hopefully we're going to do some work around market channel analysis rather than it's, it's, it's a little challenging to use just the materials that like uh, the center for farm financial management produces because you know, for commodity farms, it's fairly simple to get some of those right. numbers, but for mixed vegetable farms with multiple market channels, it's...
0: Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah,
1: it's really challenging. And so just getting started with record keeping, helping farmers to keep better records so they can have some more of that data and be able to look back on it. Um, that That's something I'm, I really hope that we can continue to move deeper into because it's it's it all has to be sustainable at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, we've covered a ton of ground. Are we missing anything
1: or I'm sure we are, but
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that is true. Well, it'll be, you know, it's almost like we have to get back together and do another one of these six months from now after we kind of see what COVID like how, 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 how consumers are reacting to being out of COVID, right? Like, and how that all, how that's playing out for farmers and yeah.
1: Yeah. If restaurants, I mean, if restaurants make a roaring comeback, I mean, that'll be a, a game changer for farmers too, you know? so Sure. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Remains, exactly. Yep. Yep. Well, I don't know. Early indications are they're coming. So coming back, I, my, was talking to, oh uh, the the farmer that I get my CSA from he he I do a pickup at a farmers market that he goes to and he was saying that it, he was like this week was the week when all of his 20 restaurant accounts called him and said they're opening up again wow yeah and the, in madison so hopefully that'll happen in other places as well
1: yeah hopefully uh and people hopefully people go out to him you know?
0: Yeah, well, there's that too. Um, people tell me that. Well, you know, you live in River Falls. I'm sure there've been rep- packed restaurants and <laughs> places around you throughout the entire pandemic.
1: So <laughs> <laughs> you mean bars, but yeah, <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, I do mean the taverns. Yeah, that yeah. that that part of our culture. <laughs> yeah, uh, but they probably weren't buying direct from farmers yeah. anyway. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it seems like they're coming back here in madison anyway so that's that's good we can cross our fingers that we can continue with this path you know
1: yeah that's that's really all we can do is just see how it shakes out
0: yeah well thanks this has been great to visit
1: yeah super nice to chat with you tara
0: thanks for listening you can get more podcasts by subscribing on itunes or your favorite podcast app And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.